It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, and I am very excited to be talking to one of our 2022 candidates. You might remember her from the amazing documentary, Knock Down the House, where you saw her campaign featured alongside current Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Congressman Cori Bush. Amy Vilela wants to join them. She's running in Nevada's first district. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. No, this is uh, it, it's an exciting candidacy. We all sort of fell in love with you in that movie. Very excited that you're coming uh-huh. back. Um, talk a little bit about that journey we, from from running to to deciding not to to then deciding to get your head back in the ring. It feels like um, a tremendously courageous challenge to take on twice. <laughs> yes, you know, in 2018, you know, I was like most people. I was um, just d- trying to go through everyday struggles that you know most people are facing. We were busy being a family and uh, really excited. And, and as most people know, I went through a, um, a really trying time in our family when we yeah. suffered tragedy. Um, you know, that's what spurred me into politics. Uh, when we ran in 2018, we were part of that first wave of progressives who didn't come from the pedigree we've always told that everybody is supposed to come from, right, for, to run for office. Yep. Um, and we just, you know, I decided that back then that uh, we needed to have people who understood what was on the line, people who had that lived experience. And when we jumped in that race in um, 2017 for the 2018 elections, uh, it really was new to all of us. We, we, it was a very big learning curve. Um, we didn't have the support systems that were you know, in place for other candidates, and, uh, but it was also very good. We got out into the communities and heard from people on the ground what they were suffering and going through. And it really helped, um, you know, helped us spur forward. From that point on, uh, then we had you know, the movie Netflix come out with the not, Knock Down the House. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember when they asked me to join that, I was like, but who's going to want to watch this? I mean, sure, you, you, you can video. <laughs> uh, no, it's you know, one of the and most that was exciting a- things you could watch. I mean, it's literally, it, you, I think the women who ran in 2018 were channeling a sort of primal scream for the rest of us. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to see that it's snowballed, that, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of reaction that happened and then went away. It wasn't a moment. It was a, it was a movement as evidenced by the number of women who have run again and been successful the second time or the third time. Um, it doesn't feel like it's going away. No, I don't think it is going to go away. I think there's a lot of struggle in our leadership has been has become detached and complacent and people are ready for change. Um, you know, I saw that when I here in my home state of Nevada, when I um, worked as the state co-chair for Bernie um, and as a national surrogate. Um, and I've been on many other campaigns since then helping and using my skill set. Um, as a CFO uh, to help others get elected like Cori Bush and, and Jamal Bowman in their primaries. Um, so we've seen a big, a big change um, and it's continuing uh, to grow. 
Do you feel like there's been a, a change in acceptance for more progressive candidates? The squad seems to get bigger every year. We went through that ridiculous thing a couple of years ago where the party infrastructure said if you worked with a primary challenger, you were blacklisted from working with the party. Um, they seem to have backed down on things like that. Do you, do you feel like as a, as a progressive, as uh, somebody, as you described, doesn't come in with a political expected political pedigree, do you feel like the ground has softened on that or is it still just, you know, hitting up against walls of people who don't want you there um, every time you try to move forward? Well, you know, I'm a proud member of the DNC blacklist as a federal <laughs> compliance consultant. So, <laughs> um, you know, yes, we have, uh, we see that it's continuing to grow, um, even with people pushing back. But the people on the ground, you know, we have seen the change from when I ran in 2017. Um, you know, the, the everybody was saying, oh, these things are just not possible. Um, you know, Nevada is not ready for, uh, you know, progressives. And since that time, we saw that um, in the presidential primary, Bernie won here in a landslide. We've also seen um, the takeover of the Nevada State Democratic Party. Yeah. And, you know, we've never stopped, um, you know, organizing here. Um, and then, you know, as COVID hits, um, you know, our organizing shifted from, uh, you know, campaigning for candidates to helping those in need. And the thing I kept hearing on the ground was, you know, our leadership, our elected leaders, especially my opponent was nowhere to be seen during that, that time period. And, uh, you know, people in the community really drafted me to run. Um, and so it it's a good moment right now for progressives. Um, and I think that we, we've seen that our, the policies that we've been talking about and pushing that really would bring change to the working class really are now at the center of most debates, regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum. So we're, we're a pro-primary challenge here on Signal Boost. We think if you're in a blue seat and you're not connected enough to the people to hold it, then that is absolutely fair game for someone to come and say that they can do a better job. And if they can win the support of the voters, then that ought to be what happens. But when I think about Dina Titus, I, I don't think of somebody who is a Democrat in name only. You know, I, I think of, she's, she's pro-choice, she's Medicare for all even. What, what makes you feel like her representation is not what progressives or, or Democrats or anybody else, frankly, needs? Yeah, so, you know, we've been um, working with most of our representatives here in the state. And actually, you know, I was the one that um, was able to push her for the Medicare for all co-sponsorship um, and, but, you know, when it comes down to it, um, you know, she's not supporting things like a Green New Deal. She's not a member of the Progressive Caucus. And, um, you know, she's had the leeway for over a decade as being the person that was holding the strongest uh, blue seat in Nevada to really use that opportunity to be a, a leading voice for, for progress um, and to really push the envelope to champion polled policies and legislation that would have a real impact um, but she hasn't been using that to really mobilize the Democrats in this district. As a matter of fact, you know, um, whether it's a, a you know a, a midterm or a presidential primary, um, she's delivered twenty thousand fewer votes of Democrats than the Republican held seat. And mm -hmm. and really, it comes down to, um, you know, 
are you really, really going there to do the work and actually fight? You know, we have some of uh, one of the biggest housing crisis uh, in, in the nation here in Las Vegas. And when my good friend Corey Bush was sitting on the steps to stop the, to stop the moratorium on evictions, you know, I, I would challenge yeah. that uh, she needs to be sitting with her. Um, we don't need someone that's just showing up to vote. We need someone who's actually going to go to Congress, uh, not just not just to show up when there's a vote, but actually fighting for those policies, you know, creating legislation and bringing their lived experiences with them to Congress. And, and that's what I bring to the table. I have skin in the game. I know what it's like to struggle. I have that lived experience. Yeah, we, we quote Ayanna Presley a lot, that the people closest to the pain need to be the people closest to the power. And, and it, was, it was hard not to think of that quote when I was reading your biography. Um, you, you lost a daughter um, because she couldn't provide adequate proof of insurance to her local emergency room. And that is, was that the moment that you, that was it that event that made you think of yourself as a candidate or is there were there other things in your background that you were aware were unjust and that you thought you might be able to fix with public service i mean i think it's important to know a little bit of uh, the entirety of my experience you know i i've known what it's like to be a single mom on medicaid WIC and food stamps uh you know i knew what it's like to grow up in poverty you know, I was, I worked my way through college in the evenings as a single mother working full-time in the day, because I had, I bought into that false narrative that if you just work hard enough, <laughs> yep. that you're safe, right? And at the, the, at the top of my career, when I was a CFO, I was remarried to an officer, a pilot in the Air Force. You know, we thought that we had, I had made it. You know, I was so excited. Uh, to be able to offer things to my children I never thought I'd be able to. And that's when Shalin came home. Yeah. And she decided to move back home um, to finish her school to become a nurse. And she was an honor roll student. I mean, I was so proud. I mean, we had done it. Uh, she was, you know, so full of life and, and full of aspirations. Um, she was 22. And uh, when she arrived home, you know, Shalin, she came with a red swollen leg and she had every mm. symptom and risk factor for a blood clot. She was black with sickle cell trait. She had just driven 22 hours on a, a torn ACL that was healing. And she presented with every, you know, with the symptoms of a blood clot. And, you know, instead of treating her, they told her to go get insurance and see a specialist. They went to a doctor's office. As she was dying in my arms from a massive pulmonary embolism, you know, I, I knew at that point injustice had happened. And, uh, you know, I, the last thing I told her as she was dying was, you will not have died in vain. And I knew that that old Amy would died with her. And this, this feeling of grief, I cannot explain. It's something that, um, you know, I, I, it is so traumatizing. Um, and, and it was a reminder that, you know, her passing it was a reminder that, you know, we're only as safe as most vulnerable amongst us. And I knew I had to do something. I didn't know what, but I remember the moment I decided that I was going to have a voice. Um, I had started throwing healthcare rallies. I had things I never thought I would do, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, again, it goes back to being told that, you know, we're all responsible for what happens to us and that, you know, if we don't come from the right pedigree, we, we should let the people who know better um, handle those things, right? And as women, we're told to, you know, just just work it hard and 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 not show a strong emotion. I decided to strong to show strong emotion, 
And I decided to turn that anger and that righteous indignation and grief into power. And I was going to have a voice. And if they wouldn't give me a seat, I was going to take one. <laughs> and uh, that's what really drove me. And I started hearing that, you know, I started researching what had happened to her when I realized that she was just not a one-off tragedy. Yeah. And that they've known about this for decades. I saw a video of Bernie Sanders in 1993, the year she was born, talking about how people were dying from a lack of healthcare and how we needed universal healthcare. And then when I started putting the pieces together, you know, especially with my background as a CFO, the part, the money and politics, I knew I could not remain silent. I could not sit back and go back to my comfortable life as an executive and knowing that other people were going to suffer this same fate. And uh, I couldn't save her, but I was going to work hard to save somebody else. And that's where I entered in politics. And the, the pandemic has hit Las Vegas particularly hard. Can you talk about some of the conversations you have with folks there? There, it's it's complete, um, you know, devastation. We have we have so many people who are having housing insecurity. Rent rents have been already raising. Um, they're projected to raise another twenty five percent. Wow! There is a yep this year alone. There is a complete lack of affordable housing available, um, and so that's one of the hardest hit issues here in Nevada. Also, jobs. Um, many people think of just, uh, you know, the casinos as being yep. the only, you know, employer and that they do have a lot of, uh, you know, hold a lot of em employment for this, uh, this state, but, and they are also decreased in, and they have not come back up to full capacity. But in addition to that, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in, 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 uh, Las Vegas and their small businesses were left out um, of many of the bills and, and things that were trying to write what was happening with COVID because the large corporations came in and gobbled it up. Um, and yeah. so, you know, we see that the, you know, the working class here is the backbone of our economy and especially for our immigrant communities. And, you know, uh, also to note, we have one of the largest uh, per capita undocumented community here in the state and they were left in limbo and they, were, they weren't given the support that was necessary. Yeah, as we watch the fights in Washington over that support, it, it feels like a, a frustrating amount of the coverage has come down to this moderates v. progressives stance. And, and I've found it, I found it especially interesting to watch as, as the progressives actually are the ones who are trying to pass a relatively moderate agenda, the one that was laid out by President Biden and Vice President Harris. And it is, in fact, the sort of moderate members that are standing in the way of, of that agenda. How have you watched that all play out over the last year? And, and if your voice was in Congress, where what would you be saying? Well, I definitely agree, um, you know, um, with my good friend, Corey Bush, that um, we definitely need to be pushing and holding a line in the sand as well. Um, you know, we had a real opportunity with the Build Back um, Better to hold the vote in order to make sure that we could, you know, force their hand on voting on this. Um, we, we have to make sure that we are being bold in the way that we're approaching these things. And we have to have our own line in the sand. We have to start delivering. Um, otherwise, we're at a real you know, um, chance of losing a ton of seats, in my opinion. Um, and 
we have to make, you know, when we, we talk about it, it's, it's, it's really been the progressives who are pushing the best parts of the, of the Biden agenda. Yeah. And I think they're really speaking to the core of how, you know, the everyday working class, you know, person is really feeling the, th the things that need to be addressed. But again, if you have been so isolated and you have not experienced the things that are happening on the front lines of our community, um, you know, you're not going to be, that's not going to be something that you're going to be pushing and, and fighting for in Congress. Um, and you can see that happening even here with in Nevada, you know, our federal delegation in Nevada is, is focusing on something entirely different than what's needed. Um, even when it comes to the climate, as we had the, the climate uh, you know, press conference out here in Nevada with Representative Cory Bush and, and others, um, we were talking about what's happening here on the, the front lines. Um, and you know, they're, while we're facing a, an environmental crisis, we're literally running out of water and literally running out of time um, they're trying to push through bills that would increase the size of Las Vegas by the size of uh, St. Louis. Um, yeah. And it's a federal issue because it's uh, taking public lands um, and putting them into private hands. It's uh, SNCA. And um, so we've been really been trying to fight back on that and, uh, and, and using that, using, you know, people on the ground here to set a precedent, uh, using uh, public, public, uh, pressure to fight this. There's another piece of your background that I find really interesting that would make you a first. You would be the first military spouse in Congress, um, which completely blows my mind that with the number of veterans that we have had serve and, and that we would want to have served, that, that somehow there's never been a military spouse represented in those halls when they bear so much of the burden that we put on our servicemen and women and their families. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that experience and, and how you hope to bring it to help people in Washington? Definitely, you know, being a military spouse, we get a front row seat um, and, you know, supporting our, our spouses in the military requires a lot um, from us as a family. It's, it's a lot of sacrifice um, and, you know, we know firsthand really what's at stake. I remember being on the phone with my husband while he was deployed in, that, in Afghanistan and we were Skyping and all of a sudden I hear sirens going off and he's like, hold on. And he's, you know, the, the, it's getting blurry and he's ducking our beds and they're being attacked. Oh, and, you know, having to sit there and not know whether or not my husband's okay um, it's, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, I can say that I'm a very proud, you know, anti-interventionist military spouse because I know firsthand what's at stake when those in the military uh, industrial complex beat the drums of war. Yeah. And yeah. I know the consequences. I have skin in the game. And we need to be working at every level to make sure we're, we're pushing diplomacy and trying, you know, and stop, you know, doing intervention, doing, you know, being interventionist and doing coups. And there's lots of things that are happening that are leading up to the points where we're at conflict, right? Um, right. And we need right. to be honest and real about our role in, in what's happening on an international scale. And if people are hearing this and they want to join you or support you in any way, where, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me at Amy Vilela 
www.portuguesdiversity.org. And I'll spell it just because it's a little difficult. My husband's an immigrant from Brazil, so it's it's Portuguese. <laughs> it's uh, it's Amy Diaz and Victor, I L E L A dot org. Amy Villela, thank you so much for joining me this morning, and and best of luck on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. It was nice talking with you today. It was great talking to you too. Stay safe out there. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 